Welcome to the 36th episode of the New Ventures podcast. I'm your host Sanjoy Sanya, the founder of Regain Paradise, a boutique climate finance firm and a visiting fellow at the Cambridge Judge Business School. I host the New Ventures podcast to help everybody understand climate change topics. And today the question that we discuss is how can early stage climate companies get investment? This is of course a question that bothers us in the climate community like no other. And to get answers to this question, we have Nick Light, the founder and president of UK's Green Angel Syndicate. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. Thank you, Sandroy. Nick, let's start by discussing the, what all you have achieved in the Green Angel Syndicate so far. Uh, yes, Green Angel Syndicate was formed as an experiment in 2013 when I was, in fact, working in another job full-time, and uh, I set it up as the only angel investment syndicate in the UK specialising in the green economy, I said at the time. It was quite successful. Uh, I was interested to note how much attention it attracted, how much demand it attracted from entrepreneurs and founders requiring investment, and indeed how many people were interested in becoming members and investing. And that led me to decide to give up the job I was doing and concentrate on Green Angel Syndicate. But I realized I had not actually got the business model quite right. So I relaunched it in 2017. And it was from 2017 onwards that it really got going. And since 2017, we've invested in 32 different companies. We've invested over 22 million. We calculate our impact in terms of carbon emission reduction. We've reduced carbon by 57,000 tons, which isn't a lot, but bearing in mind that a lot of these companies that we invest in are are pre-revenue, they're not not yet trading, the impact that they have on carbon emission reduction is at this point uh, non-existent. The reason why we invest in them is because their technology has the potential to make a real difference. Well, what is really interesting, uh, Nick, is that this angel investing group is also an entrepreneurial initiative of yours. Just give us a sense of how much money has got. It's um, around 22 million has been invested so far. We've got over 350 members, which makes us one of the largest active angel syndicates in the UK. Uh, In addition to the 22 million, we have also launched a, a very small fund, which is really also for angel investors. It just It just observes the fund mechanism as opposed to the syndicate mechanism. The fund mechanism being one where there is no discretion for the investors to choose what they invest in. The syndicate model being one which is a a club and where each member of the club makes his or her own decision. Uh, And the... So the fund we've created is a mirror image of the syndicate, and there's another two and a half million in that fund. And that has attracted a commitment from UK government of an additional 10 million, which is to be spent over over the coming four years, aligned with the fund. So the fund invests in everything that the syndicate invests in, and the government's 10 million invests in everything that the fund invests. But that overall means that our bandwidth has increased uh, and the capacity of our investments is now much greater than it was when than when we started. Well, we'll get into the details of fund and the syndicate a little bit, but just to get a sense of the 32 companies that you invested, and this is since 2017, how many of them have gone on to raise a second or third round of funding? Of the 32, 17 have gone on to raise follow-on rounds. 
And these investments have come from what you call the club or the syndicate or from other funds? Oh, yes. In um, the terms of angel investment, there is something called preemption rights. And the preemption rights mean that if I invest £5,000 to, to buy, let's say for the sake of argument, a 1% share in, in the company, if the company then raises any more money and sells additional equity, which will, of course, dilute my share from 1% to less than 1%, they are obliged to offer the shares to me first before they offer them to anyone else in proportion to the shareholding that I've got. So if they want to sell another 100 shares and I've got 1%, they are obliged to offer one share to me if I want to buy it. And so the only circumstances in which our investors do not follow their original investment is if they believe the companies are unsuccessful. Of course. So then let's go back to the point you made about the Climate Change Fund. I believe you called it the EIS Climate Change Fund, right? That's right. And I can understand this issue of discretion, but you know what prompted you to set up the fund? And you call it a small fund. The British government has also co-invested 10 million, perhaps it's some reasonable size as well, right? Well, yes, I suppose the point is that the the category of investment is very, very small. These are startup companies or early stage companies. And so the amount of money they require is very, very small. And this size of fund and this investment capacity is fit for purpose. In the wider investment world, these are tiny, tiny sums of money. So in, in terms of the wider world of fund management, Fund professional fund managers would consider a fund of a hundred million to be a small fund. You only start to become a big fund in fund management if you're over a billion. And there are lots of funds that are over a billion. So these are people who would look at our two and a half million fund with the government's ten million, and it, it just barely it barely registers Sanjoy. These are very very small amounts of money in the wider professional world of of um, fund management got it but you said the companies need tiny amounts of money how tiny is that well if you take the journey of a startup company a startup company that is developing innovative technology so that's incredibly important they have a requirement to develop specific hardware or software now, as opposed to a startup company that's opening a, a corner shop, say, or a hairdresser. So the startup companies that we're talking about typically will require initial investment to get them going of somewhere between 50,000 and 150,000. Those are the early angel rounds, which are too early for us because they're too high risk and the technology is too undeveloped at that stage. We like a slightly later stage companies where the technology has been developed beyond the lab and has reached demonstrator or proof of concept scale. In the um, American technology readiness level scale from zero to nine, that is TRL six, TRL seven. So we favor those rounds. The sums of money raised in those rounds tend to start much higher, of course. They tend to start around half a million, and they can go up as high as five million. We nearly always co-invest. In fact, we always co-invest. We never fill a round. So in the smaller rounds we'll put in of half a million, say, we will put in between 150,000 and 250,000. 
in the larger rounds that we go into, we'll put in anything up to one and a half million, but always co-investing. Brilliant. And I think this kind of helps us understand the overall picture. You know, before we get diving into the 32 companies that you've invested in, you know, you alluded to this a little bit, that you set this up when you're doing a job. And then when you saw that, that you're making progress, you jumped right in. So that leaves me with a huge amount of curiosity to understand a little bit about your background. Um, my background is originally sales and marketing and communications. And Green Angel Syndicate is, uses the skills that I developed in that sense, both in terms of the positioning of Green Angel Syndicate itself as being the only angel investment syndicate in the UK specializing in the fight against climate change. In other words, it has a very, very clear market position that distinguishes it against all of its competitors. Uh, and it, it still distinguishes itself against the wider investment world. There is Almost no one who's specializing specifically in the fight against climate change. Now, there was a curious diversion in my career, which was, again, on account of a marketing project that I'd done. I'd created a concept in, in 20 years ago that translated the very obscure roots of sustainable development into something that could operate as an applied research institute in resource use. And the point I made when I created the concept was that nobody understands sustainable development. And in the year 2000, nobody did. But everybody understands resource use. We can see the trouble we're getting into with water, with energy, with food, the resources we need for life. We can't live without these things. And yet we're making a mess of them. And so this institute was, again, a marketing concept. Now, one thing led to another, and the institute rather took me over, and I became its managing director full time. So I gave up all of my marketing and sales strategic work and closed down my own consultancy and became managing director of this growing applied research consultancy, which was largely funded by European Union partnership projects in renewable energy and waste and recycling in water, each one exploring the technology developments in these different sectors, specific technology developments with big European budgets. And most of the applied research projects were successful. And that led me to become very frustrated because all of these projects were being run by public sector partners. They were government agencies, they were universities, they were local and regional governments. The private sector wasn't there. And of course, none of these people knew how to commercialize these inventions. But I did. I came from the private sector. I, I knew about angel investment. And that's why, as an experiment, I thought, why don't I try to set up the vehicle which can exploit these commercially? It can commercialize them which is what they need in order to see the light of day and to have, to have an effect, to make a difference on anything. Otherwise, they just gather dust. And so th that was how why I set it up. The second way in which my skill base is important is, of course, in approaching, in dealing with the companies that approach us and apply for investment. I very much bring my marketing and sales skills to bear to really both test them and help them, as I say to them, if you can't sell it, you can't succeed. You can invent something brilliant, but if you can't sell it, it will go nowhere. This We live in a commercial capitalist economy. You've got, we, we're not going to change that. But if you can't make your business viable within that, 
then you will fail. But I can help you succeed. So it's useful in that context as well, Sandrai. Great. Obviously, we're going to talk about the most interesting part of the podcast, which is about the companies themselves. Before that, let me just recap what we have learned so far. You know, you set up the Green Angel Syndicate, first as an experiment, and then in 2017, it really got going. Since then, 32 companies, investments of anywhere above half a million pounds to five million pounds. There you have a co-commitment from the British government, but you obviously collaborated, I'm sure, with other funds as well and personally prompted you to set up this journey, which I actually sort of resonates with me quite a bit, is that you understood that it is very important to make practical these topics of sustainable development. You know, I, I personally feel, for example, we really need to make practical these topics around, uh, you know, task force for climate disclosures and so on and so forth. And it is also important to you know, sort of initiate the large public initiatives at the European Union level to the ground through private sector. You know, that's kind of what I've learned so far. Uh, anything else that you want to add before we move on? The other thing for the sake of absolute clarity is, of course, the syndicate, which is the club, is the dominant investment force, which is where the specialization is absolutely rooted. This, we only invest in deals where we know the market. We do not invest if we don't know the market. And that makes us very, very unusual amongst angel investors. Angel investors are hobbyists. They are investing in things where essentially they're guessing. We aren't guessing. We are purpose-driven. We are doing what we're doing in order to make a difference in the fight against climate change. This isn't a game. This is purpose in deadly earnest. So the syndicate drives everything. And that's the, the 22 million invested is invested through the syndicate. The fund, which is a baby, baby fund, is comparatively new. We only launched it last year alongside the syndicate. And that's two and a half million. But that then brought in 10 million from the government. So it's the, the balance of emphasis needs to really focus on the syndicate rather than the fund. Lovely. So let's get into the most exciting thing. Give us the sectors. And obviously, I assume the energy sector is largest, but you know, just give us an overview. So yes, it's still the resource use sectors dominate. They're the ones that we know best of all. When I set it up as a specialist syndicate, I was the specialist. And uh, I knew a lot as a result of the Applied Research Institute that I'd been running. I knew a lot about energy. I knew a lot about waste and recycling. I knew a lot about water management. Uh, transport. We do a bit of transport as well, particularly automotive and, and um, electric vehicles. Increasingly, nature-based solutions are more and more important. Food and agriculture is another sector we like. I suppose, in a way, it's almost easiest to draw attention to the sectors we don't cover. Uh, we don't cover fashion and FMCG. Both of those are very important in the fight against climate change. We mean no disrespect by excluding them. The reason why we exclude them is because we don't have anybody in our membership or in our management team who really understands those sectors. So we would be blundering around in the dark if we tried to invest in those. And that's not what we're here for. We're here to really, as I say, apply specialist knowledge so that we really can make a difference. So those are the sectors, Sandroy. And obviously, I've got to ask you about success stories. In your case, success stories would be companies who have raised, I guess, the next round of funding. Let's start with energy. Yes, that's right. We measure our success in angel investment. It's, of course, completely different from listed markets where you can see 
uh, what's happening to the company by um, monitoring its share price. And its share price is, is a reflection of its status and performance and how the market reacts to it. Well, angel investments aren't listed. Angel investments only exist in the share register that has been created by the formal investments from the angels who've invested. So there is no reliable monitor of the success of the companies. What we use is the valuation of the company at the last investment round. If we've invested in the company a year ago, it's quite possible that they won't have had a follow-on round. So the valuation hasn't changed. The value of the shares that our members have bought is exactly the same as it was when they bought them. However, as I told you earlier, there have been 17 of the companies we've invested in have had follow-on rounds. And what we do is we then measure the performance of the investment against the valuation in the follow-on round. And I'm pleased to say that they have all either remained relatively stable or they've increased. And some have increased really by attractive margins. We've got one, it was less than 5 million valuation when we invested, and it's now up at 35 million. And they're talking about a follow-on another round at 60 million. And that's a company called Nature Metrics, which is one of um, success stories. And we've had one or two others like that that have really performed well. We have had one exit, and that was a company called Zygo, which is a company that serves business customers, largely SMEs, that want to transfer the energy supply to renewable sources. In this energy crisis, the company will do better and better. Almost a year ago, it was bought by Schneider, and our investors got a three times uplift in the investment that they'd made. Is that Schneider bought it? I mean, at the end of the day, our purpose is not to help our members make money. Our purpose is to help our members fight climate change. If we do this successfully, as we must, because no company that goes bust is going to make any difference at all to climate change. We must make sure these companies succeed and hence our specialization, hence the way we help them and so on and so forth. And none of the companies we have invested in to date have gone bust, which is a very proud record. However, the important point is that these are companies whose inventions and innovations need to scale up quickly if they're going to make any difference in the fight against climate change, because climate change isn't waiting. Much more important was that being bought by a global company like Schneider means that the uh, process and technology that, they, that Zygo has created will scale up and will have an international impact now. And that's worth its weight in gold. Nick, this is obviously a great example because company being bought over by Schneider helps the technology to scale and you know, helps the entrepreneur to create great impact. You know, you already mentioned that there are two or three companies of the 17 in the energy sector where people have come in at great evaluations. Just tell us a little bit about what they do, what type of solutions they're bringing to the market. Yes. But before I do, I'll make an important point about what we do. We are trying to change entire systems from a hydrocarbon basis to a non-hydrocarbon basis. In order to do that, the only way we will do it successfully and effectively is by making incremental changes to the technology of the components that are used in those systems. And it's by making those incremental changes that integrate with one another that you build up to changing an entire system. Where Green Angel Syndicate operates is in the incremental changes. 
we are investing in inventors who are making changes not to wind installations say or solar installations but to the materials used in the blades or to the technology by which the blades are controlled or to the fixing systems blades to the turbine it's the incremental changes that matter henry ford invented a motor car over a hundred years ago and if anybody asked you to buy that motor car today you'd laugh at it instead what you can buy today is something that travels at three times the speed of henry ford's motor car at 10 times the comfort with um, all sorts of uh, added advantages uh, that is enormously more controllable, that runs for much longer, much safer, and much more reliable. It took 100 years to move from what Henry Ford invented to the, the modern motor car. And during those 100 years, incremental changes took place that improved the car's performance. That took 100 years to go from something that none of us would buy now to something that we are all buying now. The problem with climate change is we have not got 100 years, but it is that transition that's needed. And if you look at our portfolio, we're investing in the minutiae of technology change, the small incremental details like Zygo, the company we sold, something that all Zygo does is it's created a software innovation that manages to compare different renewable energy sources. Let me tell you about other examples. So there's one called Airex, which is energy efficiency in buildings. Airex are ventilator bricks, which are software controlled to monitor occupancy, humidity, and usage of heat in a way that allows greater efficiency. It's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. It is a tiny change to a heating system, uh, it's particularly designed for social housing, which makes it even more advantageous because, of course, social housing is where energy inefficiency is at its worst. These are the people who are going to be paying most unit of heat. So that's Airex. Piclo is another energy trading platform, which is all about auctioning um, renewable energy, available renewable energy in places which are renewable energy constrained. So that's the movement of energy. QLM, that's to do with methane leaks in, in the grid, which are both costly and also polluting. So that gives you an idea, Sanjoy, of the kind of companies that we're looking at. But the important point to remember, both as a potential in investor coming to Green Angel Syndicate and a potential entrepreneur coming to Angel Syndicate to look for investment, is that what really works best is this, these incremental changes. That is great. One company that I piqued my attention is this company, Nature Metrics. Could you tell us a little bit about what they do? Nature Metrics measures DNA in any given landmass uh, using a software system where up until now, by and large, in order to assess the plant and animal population of any given landmass, essentially you had to do it manually. What Nature Metrics allows is to do it, to, to automate it. So sensors pick up the data from the area concerned and you then run the data through the software system and that produces an accurate profile of the animal and plant populations in that area. Great. That will, again, sum up this point about incremental innovation. And I think that is a lot missed, actually, in this entire discussion about climate change. We think that because we have to move rapidly, which is we have to disrupt the existing technology in the market, 
but when you think about it, we have to make incremental innovation much more rapidly. And these are perhaps two different framings of the problem. I think they are, Sanjoy. If you look at the history of investment in the sector, which has gone by different names over the period, it first started in the early noughties with what was called the clean tech sector. Uh, it had been started, in fact, in the era of sustainable development. But once climate change had been put on the map by Al Gore and Lord Stern in the Stern Report in 2005, 2006, the, the bandwagon really gained momentum. And what happened was that quite big investors would invest in wind farm installations and solar installations. And these were the plans uh, to put these up really mushroomed. And there were lots of different onshore wind installations put up all over the UK, but particularly in Scotland. Offshore wind started as well. And solar was rather slower, but solar did start to get going as well. They all started with a 25-year life expectancy. But lo and behold, a lot of them were falling to pieces after five years. And the ones that weren't falling to pieces after five years were falling to pieces after 10 years. What had happened was that everybody jumped on the idea of system change, but the technology wasn't ready. Of course, everybody knew how to generate energy from electricity from wind. We'd known how to do that since the 19th century, when electricity itself was first invented. Very early on, Bright Sparks worked out how you could do it from windmills. That wasn't difficult. The technology itself wasn't difficult. What hadn't happened was developing technology that actually worked, did the job as efficiently as possible. And as a result, what was put up was simply no good. The materials were wrong. The fixings were wrong. I mean, you used to see numerous occasions, saw wind turbines that were standing there where the blades had blown off. I mean, that's how bad it was. Unfortunately, of course, clean tech investment got a very bad name as a result because a lot of people lost money on it. What we're saying and doing is saying well, you have to start with something that is viable technology for the job that you want it to do. Otherwise, it is going to fail. You have programmed failure into the whole thing. And the only way you're going to do that is if you deconstruct it and build it back up again. So those are the incremental changes that we're really concentrating on. Great. In the next section of our podcast, we'll talk about the process by which you make help companies grow. And let's start with not the companies this time, but the angels themselves. How do you recruit angels? Describe a typical angel. A typical angel investor, historically and currently, outside Green Angel Syndicate, tends to be somebody who is wealthy, who is probably retired, who is probably a business person by background, who is interested in being involved and looking at startup businesses as a hobby, and they're doing it with their spare time and with their spare cash. And so this is essentially a sector, you'll find the statistics, you know, there's very little diversity, there's very little even gender diversity. The angel investment population of the UK is less than 25% female. Green Angel Syndicate is different. We don't go and find them they find us. The reason why it's different is because it is the only one specializing in the fight against climate change. 
That means it is both serious in a way that angel investment generally isn't. It means it's specialist in a way that angel investment generally isn't. In other words, it involves real knowledge. It is cause-based. It's aligned with the mission to fight climate change. As a result, we get quite a lot of people who have a, a professional background in the industries related to the sectors that we invest in. They have actually been working in the energy sector or the water sector or the food and agricultural sector or, or in waste and recycling. And of those, quite a lot of them aren't angel investors, but they want to become angel investors in this sector. They want to put something back and they want to use their skills. We get a lot of other people who also have not been angel investors prior to this, but who are passionate about climate change. And they can see that we are doing something about it. And they want to make their money useful in addressing the fight against climate change. And so we get quite a lot of those as well. So our angel investors, they're not typical of angel investors across the sector. And as a result, we're more gender diverse than the sector generally. We are more ethnically diverse. We're more age diverse. We've got a lot of much younger people. It's a much more diverse group. This is, of course, welcome to hear. You know, curious to hear your comment. You know, for example, even about the Silicon Valley, which is in some ways has attracted talent from all over the world. So you could say it is very diverse from that standpoint. But a lot of the criticism is about men investing in companies run by men. So does this mean that your diverse group of angels invest in a little bit more diverse founder? Yes, it does. We are investing in rather more diverse founders, uh, and we want to invest in still more diverse founders. That kind of climate justice is very important. We want the diverse founders who the wider angel investment landscape would tend to ignore. We want them to come to us, and we do want to invest in them. The, the Silicon Valley story, Sanjoy, I would actually use it in the opposite in the opposite way. Silicon Valley is also specialist because it was so strong uh, on all IT related innovations. You got a lot of very knowledgeable and very serious people who wanted to invest in exciting startups who knew that landscape. It was and is a very powerful angel investment sector. This point about the specialization, I do know, and the clue is in the name, Silicon Valley, you know, it's, it's really all about one particular industrial sector. Fair enough. Uh, let's just dig into a little bit about the process. You have your angels, you have your founders. How do you generate deals? Uh, it's in the same way uh, they come to us. So, I mean, the strength of the marketing concept means that right from the word go, we were very, very visible. We've been very successful with the trade association. When it was still an experiment, the, the UK Business Angels Association asked us to enter the competition for Angel Syndicate of the Year. And we ended up coming second and were highly commended. And that was when we were absolutely tiny. You know, there were only about 20 members. But they were excited about the fact that we were doing something so different. We ended up by winning that title in 2019, incidentally. And we did become Angel Syndicate of the Year. We're hugely visible, so clearly defined as being different. So much as the 350 members tend to find us, they contact us and inquire about joining. And we start talking to them and, and then they join. You know, the majority of discussions we start end up with conversion, which, which is a sure sign that we're selling, a, we're selling something that is robust. 
The same applies to the entrepreneurs, to the founders. They find us uh, overwhelmingly. You know, we get over a thousand approaches a year. Given that we uh, have never made more than 12 investments in 12 new deals, new companies in any given year. In fact, I think I'm, uh, I think the, the highest figure is 10. We're turning them away in their hundreds, uh, which is acutely painful because, of course, we're turning away things that are, really are good. It is just so competitive that we are in concentrating on the very best. We are ignoring some which, if we had unlimited funds, we would be investing in, in much more. Well, that, I suppose, uh, is the marketing side of your skills that you've brought to the table. But after you get your deals and you make the investments, or before you make the investments, you have to do due diligence. Tell us about that process. I know I've seen a few presentations on that you know, website, and that's quite detailed. It is indeed. It is one of the things we rather pride ourselves on our due diligence. And indeed, the quality of our due diligence is one of the reasons why we were made uh, Angel Syndicate of the Year. It is considered to be among the best, if not the best, in the UK um, Angel Syndicate world. And once again, the reason for that is the specialisation. We really know what we're talking about. And so, of course, our due diligence is very, very thorough and very professional. Sanjoy, the system really starts with the deal selection process, which is before you reach due diligence. We get over a thousand approaches a year. Those approaches then go into a three or four stage filtering system, which reduces the number. And in stage one is a very, very quick yes, no. Do they meet our criteria? So a whole load get kicked out at that first stage. The second stage is when our members start to look at them and say, oh, well, we quite like that. And then a whole load more get kicked out. The third stage is when the ones that are still in are then spoken to direct. And generally, it'll be by a member of the management team and, and a member. They then talk in a little bit more detail to the company itself. And once again, that throws out another bundle. And it's at that point that... If enough members have looked at it and said, actually, we're interested in that, if all goes well, we would invest in that. In other words, there's money on the table. And at that point, we decide to invite them to pitch. We invite no more than 25 companies a year to pitch. The pitch events are very unusual because there's already money on the table. It's not a beauty parade where we're wanting winners and losers. The, the, our pitch events are events where we want every single company that pitches to end up by being a completed investment because we've already put work into them. So, and we've already identified them as being viable and valid and legitimate. But um, 25 out of over a thousand. So you can see the filtering system is really stringent. Of those 25, we then find that there are five or six that fail at pitch stage and they just aren't aren't good at presenting themselves, their case doesn't come over, and the money that was on the table then disappears. Failure and success at pitch stage is very simple. If after the pitch, enough members are interested in investing to mean that we know that there is over £100,000 on the table, we progress the deal to due diligence. The investment is all at that point, subject to due diligence, the due diligence starts. And we know that if the due diligence goes well, that 100,000 will at least double 
to 200,000. And if it goes really well, it'll do more than that. It'll go to 200,000, maybe 300,000. We then have the fund, the tiny fund cutting in and the government money cutting in. And that 300,000 will be kicked up to half a million. So those two funds between them will add 80p for every pound. So if we've got 300,000 on the table, it'll end up by being something like 540,000. So that's success at pitch level. The due diligence then starts on the, we've got per year, about, let's say, 18 or 18 companies. And the due diligence is then this exhaustive system that covers a, a preset group of questions under around 15 different headings. The headings being product, intellectual property, marketing, sales, customer base, suppliers, financials, legals, and so on and so forth. So there is about, as I say, 15 headings. And in each, there is a preset list of questions, never less than 10, sometimes as many as, as 30 or 40. Those questions are then the questions that the due diligence team works to. And it sets out to answer each one of those questions. And it's a traffic light system. So what you're looking for is a whole load of greens. If there are ambers, then you need to explore them. If there are any reds, you then need to really work out what those reds are. And if it's the reds that will stop the due diligence and make the team say, no, we're not going ahead on this. The team is made up of those of the investors who are interested in that deal, who want to get involved in the due diligence. So characteristically, you, and we've got 350 members. There are never more than 50 of the members in, interested in any given deal, less than 50 members. There are never more than 10 who want to get involved in the due diligence. The others either don't have time or they don't feel they have the skills or the not their interest in investing, but they want somebody else to do the due diligence. So the team is made up of members of the syndicate who are interested in investing. And of course, one or two members of the management team. So if there are mainly green lights and everything goes well, you then complete the deal. You tell all of, all of the members that the due diligence has gone well. And if there are others who want to come into the deal who haven't as yet expressed interest, they're very welcome. And you complete the deal, you finish the legal paperwork, you sign and the money is invested. And off the company goes. And off the company goes, that's right. Then comes the actually knowing the company in some ways, even though you've done this due diligence before that. How do you support companies often? We try to support, in our terms and conditions, we try from the very start to make it clear to any companies that um, we are interested in that part of the deal will be for us to put somebody on their board either as a non-exec director or as an observer but that person will be the person who is best and most qualified to be able to make a, a difference to the success of the company that it would not otherwise have if that person wasn't available to them nearly all the companies that approach us welcome that requirement it's one of the reasons why they've come to us they've actually come to us for the the specialist knowledge that we can bring to them, not just the money that we can bring to them. So that condition of investment is nearly always welcome. When there's an argument, it's an argument in which we think they are being arrogant or being obstructive or being, frankly, unbusinesslike, that they're not thinking about the success of the business in a sensible and an open-minded way. Met. There are some rare circumstances where there are reasons for it not to be. But nearly always it's because 
there is somebody else there connected with us who is already on the board whom we trust. That's really the way that we try and do it, Sanjoy. We put somebody on the board who is going to make a real difference. And time and time and time again, we see that reality being realized. And often, curiously, we will have put somebody onto the board who fills what we see as being the gap and has got the knowledge, um, intense knowledge of that given area. Let us say production. So actually producing the technology innovation is going to involve pulling in a supply chain that this person really knows and understands, and they don't. So he or she is really going to be able to help them. Or intellectual property, how to actually take up a strong intellectual property position. Or, or network. A lot of them want people who've got a potential network amongst their potential clients, their client base. Time and time again, the skills that they've put in for turn out to be not to be the skills that are really needed. In one famous case, um, the company, which was a brilliant company, and it still is, is doing terribly well. Six months after we invested, it became apparent that its financial management was going badly wrong and it was hitting a really, really heavy cash flow problem. They hadn't managed cash properly. We, in, oddly enough, we had two people on the board. We had one non-exec and one observer, neither of whom were financial specialists. But it was those people who had the business experience and understanding to really get to grips with the problem. They started going in every week for they required the board to meet every week. And every week they would have a board meeting where they were looking at the cash management for the following week. They then put in a new financial director who was somebody that they brought in. And over a period of two or three months, they pulled the company around and put the situation right. But that happens time and again, that actually the skills needed aren't the ones that we we thought would be needed. They're different. Because in all cases, the observer or non-exec that we put in are their experienced people. So they have specialist knowledge, but they are also broad. They have a broad commercial skill base. Uh, and that then comes into play. To sum up, before we go to the end of the podcast, I hear Nick, you know, the specialist knowledge of your angel group come over and over again. You know, this is why you have a broad, more diverse set of angel members, which actually I've noticed grown quite rapidly from, you know, 2019, you had 20, and then 2022, which is when we are talking now to more than 300, but, you know, really specialist people. And this, of course, draws in founders as well. In fact, a thousand founders approach you, but, you know, you can invest maybe a dozen of them every year or maybe 18 that's of course shows perhaps an opportunity for other angel groups to start up in is that a fair summary of this section yes yes I, we doubled during the pandemic sanjoy i mean it, we have grown very quickly no other angel syndicate has copied us really we've been going since 2013 we've been in this current form since 2017 we've been visible in 2015 when we were commended by the UK BAA and came second in the Angel Syndicate of the Year. Nobody's copied us, and partially they're not experts in climate change. The most fundamental thing that I say to the investment community when I'm talking to it is that the issue of how we manage carbon now as a global economy will determine whether or not the future of the human race on the planet is sustainable. If you look at anything else, you're looking in the wrong direction.
carbon. It's the concentrations of carbon in the atmosphere that are causing the globe to warm, and it is the warming of the globe that is causing the climate to change, and it is the change in the climate that is turning our world into something that is no longer capable of, of supporting the plant and animal, the forms of plant and animal and human life that it has supported for the last 10,000 years, the Holocene period, as it's called, during which human civilization as we know it has developed. That is coming to an end if we do not sort it out. So don't talk to me about med tech or ed tech or health or because none of these things are going to matter if we have not sorted out carbon. You know, just to sum up, I'll get in two questions. One is, you know, apart from all this hard work of deal selection and diligence supporting companies, you do a few things that to engage your angel audience. One of them is this debate. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes, we do what we call insights events. Um, we had one last night, in actual fact, where we get uh, experts. Uh, last night was Professor Matthew Hannon, who is a professor of sustainable energy, business and policy at the Strathclyde University, the, the, uh, the Hunter Center for Entrepreneurship. We had a gripping uh, presentation from him about the energy crisis, what we can do about it. But more importantly, beyond the energy crisis, nobody has, has started really thinking about what comes after this and what does come after this is another energy crisis. And that was absolutely fascinating. And, and we had a lot of members attending that and a lot of guests, in actual fact, talking to Matt about what this means. And of course, it was extraordinarily useful in pointing the direction for Green Angel Syndicate to concentrate on particularly domestic heating and um, air source heat pumps and the inventions and innovations that are needed to make those economically viable. Hydrogen is another. We need to be investing in hydrogen. And I know Matt was really bringing these up. Another person who gave us a talk a couple of months ago is Chris Stark, the chief executive of the uh, Climate Change Committee, who's been a friend to Green Angel Syndicate really since its beginning. He, he actually talks to us every year, and we had our annual session with him a couple of months, which was also incredibly concerning because of the failures in, in UK government to develop the policies that, that we need. So these sessions are uh, very useful for our members and for us to really understand the direction of travel that we need to go in. Yes. Hearing you speak about these sessions reminds me of the Cambridge Union, right? You, you were in Cambridge, right? And, and the debates we have here. I was a student at Cambridge. I've, I didn't get involved in the, in the union, however. I wasn't a I wasn't a keen debater. Yes, but you know, during my stay here, it's been one of those fascinating things to attend some of those debates. Just one last question. One thing that became clear to me is that you have your own management team who work with the with the angel. You have to pay their salaries and there are overhead costs associated. You know, how does the economics of your business work? The standard uh, angel syndicate model is that the angel syndicate charges fees. An angel syndicate is um, a high value service sector company. It is selling a service to customers who unusually are the opposite sides of the same transaction. One set of customers are the investors uh, who are looking for angel deals. The other set of customers are the entrepreneurs 
who are looking for the angels. And, uh, we sell our service to both sides. The investors do not pay very much. They pay an annual uh, subscription of £520. There are some angel syndicates that charge more. There are some angel syndicates that charge their investor members uh, a lot more. They, so there are some that charge their members thousands rather than hundreds. Of it, but it's the same basic model. We tend to make the money that keeps us alive from the charges we raise with our investee companies, the portfolio companies. Uh, and there are a set of fees that cover the process up to pitching. Uh, there's a set of fees that cover the completion of the investment. There's a set of fees that cover the ongoing management. And it's those fees that pay, those fees predominantly that pay the salary, the salaries of our, our team. And if people have to get in touch with you, how should they? My email is nick at greenangelsyndicate.com. Go on the website. You can see the contact details there. Email connection is info at greenangelsyndicate.com. But that'll come to me if they want to talk to me. If they know they want to join, go on the homepage of the website and click on the Join Now button. And that will allow them to go through the process of becoming a member. With that, thank you very much, Nick. It was wonderful hosting you. You know, the point that you make about specialization is absolutely so important. Thank you very much, Sanjoy. It's been a real pleasure. If you like this podcast, do visit us on regainparadise.org, regainparadise.com. Uh, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, and you can also subscribe to these podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Google, Apple, and YouTube.